This morning, we're going to look at a story in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. And um, in this story, um, we get, um, we're going to get a snapshot of Jesus' teaching ministry and his healing ministry. And what Luke wants us to wrestle with in this passage is with Jesus' absolute and unique authority. And so we're going to go ahead and read this story, and then we're going to talk about Jesus' authority. So you can find the story in your uh, bulletin. It's on page 12, and it's Luke chapter 4, verse 31 through 44. Let's give our attention now to God's holy and inerrant word. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. And come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose." And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever and ever. Let's go before him and ask for his help. Father, would you please come by your spirit and make clear to us the gospel of Jesus. We pray that we would have the ears to hear good news this morning, that you would remind us this very day that we are all far more broken and sinful and depraved and twisted than we could ever truly imagine. But we praise you and give you thanks that it can be true at the same time that we are far more broken than we could ever imagine, that we are also far more loved and secure, and accepted, and approved of than we could have ever dared to dream possible. 
And we can be both those things at the same time only because of the good news of the gospel. And so we pray that you would help us to see the person and work of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to start this morning um, by reading two very brief uh, quotes to you from two different authors. Um, And the reason I want to set set it up with these two quotes is because I want us to talk about Jesus' authority from a couple of different angles this morning. So first, there's a famous quote um, that if you've been coming here uh, for some amount of time, you've heard me use this quote before. It comes from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings story when Aragorn the king came into the city of Gondor, and, and in the city, the sick and the injured, they were lying on their beds, many of them about to pass away into death. But when Aragorn came into the city, the king, when he came into his city, he had the power to lay his hands on people and heal them and snatch them out of the jaws of death. And Tolkien, in this passage of the story, he reminds the reader that this was a fulfillment of an ancient prophecy, he says, uh, that the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. You know, the Lord of the Rings is just fiction, right? A, a fantasy story. But in Luke chapter 4, Luke wants us to meet the real and true king whose hands are the hands of a healer, who is Jesus. I mean, just a few verses before this passage that we read in Luke chapter 4, Luke tells us that Jesus stood up in a synagogue and he read a prophecy about himself from Isaiah, a prophecy that said he was anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, I'm the rightful king in whose hands or whose hands are the hands of a healer. Now hold that thought for a second. And second, I want to talk about a quote from Tolkien's friend, C.S. Lewis, who once wrote that Christianity was hated not at bottom because it pictured Jesus as man, but because it pictured him as king. Lewis was saying the idea of Jesus as king is deeply offensive to us. Because as king, he demands full and complete submission. As king, he rules and reigns and confronts and challenges our autonomy. Right Again, just before this passage in Luke chapter 4, maybe you ought to go back and read Luke chapter 4, but we're told that the people who heard Jesus, when they heard him speaking in the synagogue, they were filled with wrath. Right, And they tried to take him out of town and throw him off of a cliff because of the things that he said. Why? Why were they so angry that they wanted to shut him up forever? Here's what they said when they heard Jesus. Is not this Joseph's son? I mean, you know what they're saying? We know you. How dare you claim to be our king? How dare you demand submission and obedience from us. See, in Luke 4, Luke wants us to wrestle with Jesus' authority. His authority on the one hand to demand our full and complete submission, and on the other hand, his authority to undo 
and heal all of our brokenness. So here are the three things I want us to talk about this morning. First, I want us to consider Jesus' real authority. And then second, I want us to consider Jesus' reversing authority. And then finally, I want us to talk about our response to Jesus' Jesus' authority. So Jesus' real authority, Jesus' reversing authority, and our response to Jesus' authority. First, let's talk about Jesus' real authority. What stands out in this passage and what amazed people about Jesus is that he possessed real authority. We're told that when Jesus went to Capernaum, the people were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. That's verse 32. I mean, the synagogue was a place of teaching, right? It was where people came, and they heard lots of teaching, right? But Jesus' teaching, they're saying, was different. There was something unique about his teaching, Because all the other teachers, they got their authority from someone else. Their teaching was like mine, full of lots of quotation marks, right? Quoting other people. They had to point you to authority. They didn't have authority in themselves. But Luke is saying they were amazed and astonished because Jesus himself possessed authority. All over the places in the Gospels, we see Jesus' claims of authority in probably one of the most famous sections of all of Scripture, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You hear Jesus repeat a phrase over and over again, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. You have heard that it was said, don't break your oath. And what, what always followed that little formula when Jesus was teaching? He would say, you heard that it was said, fill in the blank, but I tell you, right? Jesus claims absolute kingship. He claims to be the ultimate authority. So what happens when you and I are confronted with Jesus' authority? What happens when we're confronted with authority, Jesus' authority? You see what happened in verse 32 and verse 36. The people, were told, were astonished, and they were amazed. Now, you read that in the English, and it just sounds like the people were really impressed with Jesus. But that's not the sense that Luke is trying to go for here, right? In particular, that word amazed is actually a word that means to strike with panic, or shock. You might say they were thunderstruck, right? People were thrown off balance when they were confronted with Jesus' absolute authority, with his real authority. And Luke is saying, he's saying there is something awesome and there is something disturbing and unsettling about Jesus' real authority. Listen, for those of you who have children, um, wasn't it disturbing to you how quickly they learned, and how broadly they applied the words my and mine when they were growing up. I mean, it was pretty much mama, dada, mine, right? I mean, and it, they applied it to everything that was in, within their reach. I mean, that's the curved in nature of our hearts. We are trying desperately to get the world to revolve around us, And because it's the nature of our hearts, we don't grow out of it, right? Just think about how often we use the word my, because we talk about how it's my money, it's my car, it's my stuff, it's my job, my career, my time, my kids, my body, my sexuality, and on and on we could go, right? 
we really don't grow out of it. You, you know what the number one most played song at funerals is? It's My Way by Frank Sinatra. Right? You know the hook, right? I'll do it my way, even from the casket, shaking our fist at Jesus' authority. Um, listen, so yeah, Jesus' real authority, it's disturbing. It's unsettling. It's thunderstriking. It's wrath-provoking when you hear it. Because he's the king, and he is laying claim to you and everything about your life. Amy Carmichael is a famous missionary to India in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And she once wrote, if you have never been hurt by a word from God, it's probable that you've never heard God speak. She was saying, we ought to expect that Jesus' real authority will at times hurt us, that it will confront us and cut us to the quick. Jesus' real authority comes and it confronts us and it challenges our autonomy. He comes to confront that curved-in nature of our hearts that says, no one tells me what I should do or what I should think or what I should be, right? He comes to challenge the idea that you're accountable to no one but yourself. Have you met the real Jesus is what I'm asking you here, because he possesses real authority. He makes claims upon your life. You and everything about your life were meant to revolve around him. And anything short of that is you failing to be what he made you to be. Okay, we're going to hold on to that thought for a second about Jesus' real authority. Second, I want us to consider Jesus reversing authority. Um, It's an awkward way to phrase it, and I know that, but I want us to see in these healing miracles of Jesus that what he's doing is he's at work reversing the effects of the fall and sin on his creation. There's this story um, that we read about a man in this passage who was possessed by an unclean demon or an evil spirit. And we don't have time to unpack demon possession this morning, but for our purposes, so we don't miss the forest for the trees this morning, let's just say that this man was so steeped in wickedness that this evil spirit was controlling him, even using his voice to speak. And when this demon spoke to Jesus, it knew who Jesus was. Right, The demon in the last part of verse 34 said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And biblical scholars will tell you that there was a common understanding that if you knew someone's precise name and you could call it out, that you could secure mastery over that person. So this demon is not uttering a, a confession so much as this demon is trying to control Jesus. But because Jesus possessed real authority... It was useless to try and control him, right? I mean, that's really the point of this story. You read this story, and there's hardly any drama here. I mean, this is not the exorcist, right? There's no hocus-pocus. There's no fancy incantation. There's no uh, appeal to a higher power. Jesus, on his own authority, just said, be silent and come out of him. And that was it, and out it came. And this man was fully restored. Next thing about this little story with Simon's mother-in-law, who had a fever, and we don't know what the illness was, but it had incapacitated her. But with effortless authority, 
Jesus healed her. He simply rebuked the fever, and it left her. I mean, he restored her, and just like that, she began to serve and wait on them. In the last few verses that we read, in verses 40 and 41 in particular, Luke is telling us that these two stories, they were just examples of what was happening around Jesus all the time with these healings. I mean, that evening, Luke wrote, the people brought all the sick and demon-possessed to Jesus, and Jesus healed them and drove the demons out. Evil spirits, demons, sickness itself, heard and obeyed the voice of Jesus. Here's what's happening in these stories. Jesus is showing his reversing authority, that he has come with his authority to reverse all the effects of sin and brokenness upon his creation. His his authority, he's telling us, is expressed in healing and mending and reweaving and restoring his fallen and broken creation. One author writes, Jesus' miracles serve as a foretaste and advertisement of his whole saving work. In other words, Luke has given us a couple of snapshots limited by space and time to a place called Galilee, and it is the preview. It's the trailer of coming attractions. One day, someday, Jesus will reverse every bit of sin's curse. And in that day, his people and his world will be made whole and healed. Probably 10 years ago, maybe it's even longer, a movie called Slumdog Millionaire came out. And if you haven't seen it, you're just too late. And I'm going to ruin it for you because I'm going to tell you the ending. But um, it's the story of this young man named Jamal Malik and a, a girl named Latika. And they were both orphans from the slums of Mumbai, India, and they were in love, right? And the movie traces their stories together and apart throughout the whole thing. And all the time, they're getting, they keep getting separated, and it shows you the, the just extremely harsh circumstances that they endured, the pain and the sorrow and the loss. And they were left with scars in their lives, uh, metaphorically, but also very literally, um, from all the abuse and the suffering that they endured. And the girl, Lotica in particular, she had this scar, if you've seen the movie, had this scar running down her cheek left by a knife, and it was this harsh, just ever-present reminder of the brokenness of her life. And at the end of the movie, like all good love stories, Jamal and Latika, they're reunited, I think, at the train station, if I remember uh, rightly. And in that scene where they're reunited, Jamal pulled Latika close to him. And in this extreme close-up shot, you saw him press his lips to that scar on her cheek and kiss her. And as, I just love it. It's brilliant. As soon as he does that, the whole movie plays in reverse. And I remember the first time I saw it, I thought I sat on the remote or something. Um, it, it shocked me. And then I realized what was happening visually that the director, whatever, was saying the kiss of true love at the point of her brokenness. It had the authority to reverse all the painful brokenness of her life. It had the authority, the authority to undo and rewrite and reweave her story. 
And we say that, yeah, but that's just a movie. Well, that's kind of my point. We're all longing for a fairy tale like that. We are longing for a love, a mercy, a power, an authority that can come into our lives and undo the brokenness and rewrite our stories. The kiss of the true prince that could wake us up from death and make us whole and complete. It's just a movie, but what Luke is telling you is this is so much better than the movie. It's so much better, and it's so much bigger than you could have ever dared dream. Jesus came with the authority to reverse the curse of sin in your life and all of its effects. And how did he do it? Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples? Some of you will remember this. He said, no one, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have what? I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis wrote about a deeper magic, a a, a magic deeper than the curse, right? That when an innocent victim was killed in a traitor's stead, Lewis says, the table would crack, and what? Death itself would start working backward. Jesus had the authority to lay down his life for you in your place. And he had the authority to take it up again. He came into this world to break the back of death, to set you free. And the gospels bid you to come and find life in him. And that when you do, death itself will begin to work backward in your life. All right, this all brings me to the last point, our response to Jesus' authority. What do we do with Jesus' real authority um, that demands our complete submission? What do we do with his authority to reverse sin's effects in our lives? Let me just give you a couple things here. First, you have to come into Jesus' presence as you are with your brokenness. You have to take your hands off of your life and come to him as you are. That's how you respond to Jesus' authority. The man possessed by an evil spirit was set free in Jesus' presence. Simon's mother-in-law was healed when Jesus' presence came to her house. And then, you, and then look at verse 40. All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them. And healed them. They brought the broken into the presence of Jesus and found that the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. You know, occasionally we'll sing this hymn from time to time uh, at Grace Community Church, this hymn called Come Ye Sinners. Let me just read you a couple lines. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity. Joined with power, he is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. And this verse, come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised, and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. See, you have to give up even your own righteousness 
and come as you are into Jesus' presence. Because as that, that verse of that hymn ends, not the righteous, not the righteous, sinners Jesus came to call. So come as you are. Uh, I just realized that's a quote from Kurt Cobain, um, Nirvana. If you're my age, you'll recognize that. But anyway, second, I want you to see something else in verse 39 about our response to Jesus' authority here. It's stated in such a way in this verse, the first time you read it, you almost totally miss it. Um, You just read right over it without thinking it's a big deal. And what I'm talking about is the last half of verse 39. It reads like this, the fever left her and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Healed by Jesus, she began to serve them. Of course, she's grateful, so she serves them. But I think there's more for us to get our hearts and minds around here in in this little verse. Because I think this is a part of Jesus making her whole and healing her. I mean, Jesus' healing touch in her life, it set her free to be and to do what Jesus made her to be and do, which is serve him, which is to have her life revolve around him. Listen, from one page of the Bible to the very end, there's a very simple point running through, through it all. You were made to serve one master and one king. Adam and Eve, they were made to serve one master, but they wanted to do it my way. And when they did, they plunged the whole world into sin, ruin, and misery. But God kept coming after his people You shall have no other gods before me, he told them, right? And the final, the first and greatest commandment, Jesus said, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In the final book of the Bible, what is the picture given to us? A multitude from every nation, tribe, and language standing before the throne of the Lamb crying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And it's a picture of all of God's people revolving around the King upon His throne. You know, we have all tried to serve other masters and other kings in our lives, hoping against hope that if we serve them well, one day they might set us free. Right? We've done it in our careers. We've said, if I give my life to being a success, I'll finally get the approval that will set me free. We've turned to money and we've said, if I can just make enough, one day I'll find the security I so desperately long for in this life. We've turned to power and we've said, if I get enough, I'll be able to make a name for myself that will last. We've turned to moralism and we've turned to religion and we said to ourselves, if I can do enough, then I'll feel worthy and then I'll feel clean, and then I'll feel unashamed. And we could list a hundred other things, right? But here's the common thread. Every one of these masters demands that you die to get them. And every one of these masters ends up enslaving you more and more. See, the Bible's saying there is only one master and one king who is willing to die for you. There is only one master 
And there's only one king, one person with authority that if you come to him, he will set you free to be who you were meant to be, and that's Jesus. Let me end with just a few practical observations here. Uh, My idea here is to talk about what should you expect to see in your life as you come to Jesus and he sets you free to serve him? The short answer to this is that you should expect to see death start working backward in your life. But in what kinds of practical ways? One, when Jesus healed this demon-possessed man who was steeped in wickedness, we are reminded in this story that God loves sinners. He loves sinners. And with de- when death starts working backward in your life, you begin to love fellow sinners in this life. You stop trying to create a comfortable distance between you and them over there. And you start moving towards the broken and the falling. You long, you long to show grace to those who have been wrecked by their own sin, who have made messes of their lives, because that's exactly what Jesus did for you. He moved towards you, and he met you in your brokenness and in your sin. Two, I love how verse 40 says that people were bringing their sick to Jesus. I mean, they grabbed their friends and their family members who were hurting and were suffering and were disillusioned and oppressed and lonely, and they said, come meet Jesus. I'm going to bring you to meet Jesus. It's not on you to heal the broken. You can't. Your job is to bring your friends to the rightful king whose hands are the hands of a healer. And that looks like really learning how to listen to your friends and understand them. It looks like telling them about Jesus. It looks like bringing them to Grace Community Church or a place like that where they can meet Jesus in his word. But finally, I I just keep thinking about what a weird night verse 40 and 41 must have been. I mean, I don't know how else to put it, right? An evening where all the sick with all kinds of diseases, and all the demon-possessed people were surrounding Jesus, right? What must that have looked like and sounded like? I mean, and there was Jesus. He was right there in the middle of that crowd, in the middle of suffering and pain and sorrow and slavery to bring healing. And we think, where could I find a crowd like that? Um, I would say you don't have to go far at all because Capernaum was just an ordinary city, and you live in an ordinary city in Memphis. The lonely, the heartbroken, the addicts, the wounded, the confused, the people who feel trapped, the poor, the oppressed, the depressed, right? They go to work with you, right? They live on your street, and they play on your son's baseball team, And you drive through their neighborhoods because their neighborhoods are your neighborhoods, right? When death starts working backwards in your life, your eyes are open to see the hurting. And you get in the middle of the hopeless cases to bring the hope of Jesus. There's such good news here for us. Jesus possesses real authority and he has the authority to reverse all the effects of sin and brokenness. Don't take offense at this king. Come into his hands because his hands are the hands of a healer. 
and find the freedom of a life revolving around him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have spoken. We thank you that your word is a light unto our path. We thank you that on every page of your word, you reveal to us Jesus. And we thank you this morning that you teach us of his authority, his very real authority, and his authority to reverse the effects of sin. Father, we pray that you would give us grace, that we, your people, would tarry no longer, because not the righteous, not the righteous, sinners Jesus came to save. Father, set us free as we come into his hands. Set us free in order that our lives would revolve around him. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.